The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Joe is the author of multiple books. He was previously the head of RZIM Canada. Some of you may know him through that, and he has uh, several good books that relate specifically to apologetics. He's also coming out with a new book, and some of you will have heard about this, but it is directly related to this evening's passage. Uh, It's called The Mission of God, A Biblical Perspective. Well, good evening, everyone. Welcome again to uh, Westminster Chapel in this uh, summer series that we've been having together. I want to express my thanks and uh, the team's thanks to Roger and Anna, and for this remarkable selection of songs this evening that really reflect uh, a hymnody and themes that are almost absent today from the hymnody of the church and need to be restored uh, to the life of the church. Uh, That uh, song we've just sung together, O God, Do Not Keep Silent, is really, really beautifully summarizes uh, the Uh, message of the book of Amos. We're going to read this evening from Amos chapter 1. We're not covering the whole book. We're just doing Amos chapter 1, verses 1 through chapter 2, verse 3. And we're looking at the theme of the certainty of judgment. The certainty of judgment. And these declarations are made in the early part of the book, against the Gentile peoples surrounding Israel. Amos chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Isaiah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. So I will send a fire upon the house of Hazael, and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. I will break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Avon. And him who holds the scepter from Beth Eden and the people of Syria shall go into exile to Kerr, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza, and it shall devour her strongholds. I will cut off the inhabitants from Ashdod, 
and him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron, and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord God. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Because they delivered up a whole people to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Tyre and it shall devour her strongholds. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity and his anger tore perpetually and he kept his wrath forever. So I will send a fire upon Timon and it shall devour the strongholds of Bozra. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of the Ammonites and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead that they might enlarge their border. So I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabah and it shall devour her strongholds with shouting on the day of battle, with a tempest in the day of the whirlwind and their king shall go into exile He and his princes together, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because he burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. So I will send a fire upon Moab, and it shall devour the strongholds of Kerioth. And Moab shall die amid uproar, amid shouting and the sound of the trumpet. I will cut off the ruler from its midst and will kill all its princes with him, says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So uh, Dr. Michael Haken gave me this uh, task this evening to address the certainty of judgment in the book of Amos. Just before we get into the text, uh, let's just note a few things very briefly about Amos. Amos was a man called from a business in livestock in Judah during the reign of Uzziah and sent to the northern kingdom of Israel to deliver these oracles where the king was at that time Jeroboam II. And it was actually a time of economic prosperity for the northern kingdom. They were pretty pleased with themselves. It was a time of expanding borders and military conquests for the northern kingdom of Israel. At the same time, though, whilst there was this economic prosperity, there was tremendous decline religiously. Idolatry was prevalent and there was a widespread abandonment of the law of God. And so the setting is the first half of the 8th century BC, which is well after the political division of Israel and Judah. So the kingdom is divided after King Solomon, and we have a permanent political division of the kingdom, and it's before the Assyrian revival 
of tremendous military might and strength. At this point in time, Israel's enemies seem relatively weak. And Israel has been able to prosper economically and expand its military strength. Yet what you notice when you read the book of Amos, when you read the whole thing through, if you haven't done so, you can perhaps do that this week, we see that there is really nothing original in the content of Amos oracles to the pagan, the Gentile nations, and to the nation of Israel. I think it was Ligon Duncan who uh, pointed out that um, some have suggested that Amos needed an editor and that uh, he could have, um, could have been trimmed down somewhat because some of the book appears repetitious. Uh, nonetheless, the oracles that uh, Amos delivers are not really original in content. Rather, they belong very uh, clearly to the Mosaic Covenant. His message conforms directly to the Mosaic Covenant, and the curses on the crimes of the nations we see are actually drawn directly from the Sinaitic Covenant with Moses. So we're not dealing with uh, original material in Amos. He is being called to announce to the people of Israel, the kingdom of Israel, uh, things that they would have already known. And also he's called upon to make these pronouncements against the neighbors of Israel. The main theme of the book, taken as a whole, is the universal justice of God. This chapter 1 through to verse 3 of chapter 2 deal with these pronouncements against the Gentile nations. The rest are against the nation of Israel. We're not going to deal with Israel this evening. Uh, Paul Martin dealt directly with uh, Israel last week in our previous study. But we're going to look at the universal justice of God and his sovereignty his covenant-keeping character and nature, and the way that God detests all syncretism. The root causes of the curses that are actually announced here upon the nation, nations, both Gentile and Jewish then, are actually uh, idolatry and rebellion against God. That's the root cause of these seemingly harsh pronouncements against the Gentile nations. Amos depicts at the very beginning of uh, the book God as a lion roaring from Zion in verse 2 and utters his voice from Jerusalem. So from the holy place, from the dwelling of God, if you will, we hear the voice of God, the lion of the tribe of Judah, roaring. And this roar, we're told, withers Carmel itself from the lowest valleys to the tips of the mountainside. Now, whenever I read about the lion of the tribe of Judah and I read about the roaring of God, I can't help but think about uh, C.S. Lewis and Aslan the lion in the, the, the uh, tremendous Narnia Chronicles uh, because I grew up on those and, of course, they've made some of these movies recently. And the... Uh, Tremendous roar of Aslan the lion, the way it's, it's capable of melting ice. And here we've got this image that Amos gives us at the very beginning of the book of God the Lord letting out a roar from his dwelling place. This is God speaking. Now within the text of Amos 1 and 2, we have uh, a general format of the oracles which is very consistent throughout Yahweh, God the Lord, is speaking. 
Thus says the Lord. There's no doubt about whose voice is speaking to the nations, whose voice is speaking to the people. It is God who is speaking. We're not hearing an exposition of uh, Amos's opinions or uh, sociological commentary. It is thus says the Lord. This is what God is saying. And it's followed by a statement each time of the certainty of coming punishment, the evidence for the specific crime. So we have God declaring that he is the source of this declaration. We have an analysis of the crime that's been committed. And then we have a declaration of the punishment which is coming. So he is speaking in the first person here for God. And we have here in Amos God holding foreign nations accountable for their breaches of the law of God. This is not the first time that we see this. We see this, in fact, in uh, Leviticus 18, and we see it recorded in the history of Israel when God, we are told, turns out the Canaanites out of the land for their abominations. And God says I, to Israel, I'll give you this land if you're obedient to me and don't commit any of the abominations which have defiled the land for which I am turning out this people. So it is not the first time in Scripture we see God making declarations about nations outside of Israel and their being disinherited of land and status because of their breaches of God's law. And this immediately raises in our minds, as uh, Roger has already highlighted for us this evening, a question about the nature of judgment. You know, we don't often hear sermons on these sorts of texts uh, these days, because as Roger said, oftentimes people go to church today to feel better about themselves, to feel happy, and they don't much like it if the pastor makes them feel miserable or downcast or uh, even too thoughtful on a Sunday morning. And so often these kind of texts are not the focus of our declarations. And, e and if we do touch on the theme of judgment, we very quickly want to move on just touch on it briefly, move on swiftly to grace and mercy so that we don't leave people with a bad taste in their mouth. And that tends to be the way in which we approach the question of the judgment of God. We see it as a negative thing and not a positive thing because it does conjure in our minds images of thunder and lightning and fire. Fire is repeatedly referred to in this passage. And so... It's not often considered a profitable subject for sermonizing and certainly not for conversation amongst Christians for the most part. And yet, the concept of judgment is inseparable from the very idea of justice. And it's therefore inseparable from the idea of law. We cannot have law and justice unless there is judgment. That's why we call upon, even in the nomenclature of our courts today, to, for judges or justices to render a judgment. That judgment is rendered in the light of justice, and justice is determined in the light of that which is just, which in the Bible is in terms of God and his word. So at first glance, we might think that uh, we're not really interested in the subject of judgment. But I would actually contend this evening that we all love judgment, even if we don't realize it. 
Let me explain why for a moment. Judging things is absolutely essential to all of life. You cannot live life without judging things and issues all of the time. None of us could spend our lives meditating on and contemplating an endless array of choices. We have to make judgments all of the time about where we're going to go, what we're going to do, what we're going to wear, where we're going to work, how we're going to live. We are constantly making the, we are constantly involved in the process of differentiation. We don't like it when we have to vacillate constantly between two opinions. In fact, uh, to be unable to render judgment would actually drive you mad in the end. You'd literally go insane. That's why actually a lack of judgment or justice in any society makes people angry. Because we want to see differentiation. We want to see lines clearly drawn. Now the difficulty, of course, is that judgment is out of fashion. It's out of fashion because it's equated with being judgmental. And to be judgmental means, to most people today, to be insensitive, intolerant, bigoted, uh, chauvinistic, or filled with various phobias of an ever-increasing variety. And so the very idea of judgment, very often for Christians in the modern world, makes us feel that we are being judgmental. We've been indoctrinated into the idea that judgment is a bad thing, and yet we are judging things all of the time. And so are non-Christians. People who reject the word of God and the law of God are rendering their own judgments. What has it been replaced with in our culture? Well, Ian Hunter, the uh, political scientist uh, and, uh, who studied at U of T and at Cambridge, professor of law at the University of Western Ontario, in his little book, Three Faces of the Law, A Christian Perspective, he says that victimology has become the current Canadian ideology over and against the judgment and justice of God. And this is what he says. And I quote, entitlement to media attention and often to government assistance depend increasingly on one's ability to portray oneself as a victim. A victim by age, ancestry, race, gender, even sexual predilection. Mrs. Lavalley shoots her sleeping husband. The Supreme Court of Canada acquits her because of battered wife syndrome. The Menendez brothers blow their parents away with a shotgun. They can't be convicted because they are incest survivors. Only a black jury understands, understands systemic racism and can try Carlton Parks. Meanwhile, the Indians of Davis Inlet proclaim themselves independent of all white man's law. And according to the feminist ideology which dominates all university departments, albeit none more virulently than law schools, all women are victims by definition, victims of the patriarchal society. However ludicrous such victimology may be, we are worn down by it, worn down to the point that judgment becomes impossible, whether in the court of public opinion or in a court of law, end quote. So he's pointing out how our culture today makes the very idea of judgment something which we think is impossible to do. But judgment isn't a bad thing. It's a necessary thing to maintain our sanity. And without it, there can be no differentiation. In fact, friends, there can't be good and evil. 
There can't be right and wrong. There can't be truth and falsehood. There can't be justice and injustice without judgment. Thankfully, God is the source of law, the source of justice, and a righteous judge. We're not dealing with a tyranny. That's the first thing. The second preliminary question pertaining to justice then is that it can only be administered in terms of God's standards. The question becomes in Scripture, what is the standard to be? Well, the oracles that are made here in Amos against the six Gentile nations make it very clear that the standard is God's justice, God's judgment, and God's law, not man's. It's very interesting that what we learn here is there wasn't one standard for Israel, one standard for the Jews, and a completely different standard for the surrounding Gentile nations. There is a universal justice that the book of Amos has in view. It's not one rule for one and another for another. In fact, in giving the law to Moses, we, re- we read repeatedly throughout the Pentateuch that there is one law for the stranger and for the alien amongst you. In other words, it's the rule of law, which actually has been the very thing that has established the freedoms that we enjoy today or have enjoyed in the Western world, the rule of law. And in this case, it is God's law that governs. Now, there is only one alternative to this perspective. That is that there is one law of God and that God sets the standards. There's only one real alternative, and that's a relativistic or subjectivist view of ethics and morality. What does that mean? Well, it means that morality is conditioned by the age or the historical situation or the cultural context in which one is living. So there might be, quite conceivably here, one law for Edom, one law for Moab, one law for Damascus, one law for Tyre and so on, and another law for Israel. We could say that, well, these were pagans and their culture was different. Their religious worship was different. Their geography was different. Their backgrounds were different. Their ethnicity was different. And modern thinking about justice and judgment would say, therefore, that, well, they can't all be judged by the same standards. These people will have different standards different moral perspectives, and yet they are all judged by the same law. Putting it philosophically, the idea today is that of development. Development. And this is what you hear all of the time, and if you read the papers, you see it in the papers all the time. We're told that we are making progress. And these uh, ethical revolutionaries... These liberal revolutionaries say they are progressives. And it's progressivist, which is the idea that they have been moving on. They are developing. There was a German philosopher called Hegel who believed that there was development in history. History is evolving and changing, and it's moving towards the absolute. Put simply, it means that the spirit of the age appoints the ethics and the justice and the morality of the age. So you constantly need to change and update justice and law. 
So the question is, either the God of Scripture has a universal standard of righteousness and justice and God is unchanging, or we are actually consigned to a relativistic and subjective view of morality. And if that's so, then what's right today may not be so tomorrow. What's just today may not be so tomorrow. And ethics will become an aspect of my taste and your taste. Your feelings and my feelings. Your context and my context. If they are absolute but grounded in God's word, in God himself and in his word, justice and righteousness then are unchanging. Now, without that standard, we progressively become incapable of discriminating between good and evil. And that's what is happening in our culture today. Ian Hunter, again, is very perceptive here. He says, let there be no mistake, at the end of this road is not tolerance, but tyranny. When we shrug off the perhaps now wearisome burden of judging, we shall not find utopia, a tolerant city set upon a hill, we shall find a concentration camp. End quote. That's why I'm so thankful when I read passages like Amos chapter 1 and I can rejoice in the justice and the judgment of God. That we are not subject to the tyranny of the mob. We're not subject to the changing winds of history. But God sovereignly governs the nations all the nations, in terms of his justice, his law, and his standards. In Isaiah 32, verse 1, we read, Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and princes, princes will rule in justice. Whose righteousness? Justice and righteousness, by the way, are interchangeable terms in both the Old and the New Testament. They have the same root. Righteousness of God equates to the justice of God. In fact, when Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, that word can be legitimately translated, those who hunger and thirst for justice. In Psalm 37, 31, we read, the law of God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. So, we can't understand these prophecies against the Gentile nations unless we appreciate that God reigns over all the nations, not just Israel. That God is the king of all the nations. And that all authority in heaven and earth belongs to him. That's the meaning of Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? Why do the kingdoms plot against the Lord and his anointed? Be warned, all rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and he perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And this is the same point that the Apostle Paul is concerned to make in Romans 1 and 2, and I know you'll be so familiar with those passages that I'm not going to read them to you, but especially Romans chapter 1 uh, verses 16 through 32, and especially there, Romans 1, 80, uh, 28 following, Paul makes very clear that violations of the law of God, and he names some of them, are known to all men, and that God's decree is that those who practice such things, he says, are worthy of death. But they not only do such things, they celebrate those who practice them. 
So the Apostle Paul makes precisely the same point about the universal justice of God being known to all men in their moral natures, written in their consciousness, consciousness as creatures made in God's image. The righteous requirements of the law are written on their hearts and their conscience bears witness to this reality of the universal justice of God. That has to be the premise of being able to read Amos chapter 1. That they are willful in their violation of the law of God. Don't forget we are all descendants of Adam and of Noah. The whole of the human race. The Puritans spoke of a covenant of works between all men and God, which brings all men into judgment. You see, you can't have a gospel that delivers us from sin. What is the, how does the Bible define sin? The Bible says that sin is lawlessness. If man is not under the law of God, he's not a sinner. Paul says so. Without the law, he says there's no knowledge of sin. Law shuts me up under judgment because of sin. If I don't believe that God's law is applicable to all men, then I actually cannot believe that the gospel is applicable to all men to redeem them from all lawlessness and to make us, remake us in terms of the righteousness of God. The law given to Moses on the mountain was in codified form, what was inscribed on the human heart. So Douglas Stewart, in his commentary on Amos, notes concerning this very passage, Yahweh is not merely the God of Israel or Judah, but has an implicit covenantal relationship with all nations. And that means God will enforce sanctions against those who rebel against his word. In the Bible, throughout the Bible, throughout Scripture, History is working towards a particular end. There is a teleology at work, and it's moving towards the final judgment, of which all judgments in history are but an indicator, a pointer, towards God's final act of differentiation, of justice, and of righteousness. Amos reminds us that God then is active in history, not just at the end of time. Often when times as Christians we sing about the judgment and justice of God, and all we have in mind is the end of time, the end of history. Amos has more than this in mind. The Bible has more than this in mind, the judgments of God in history. Our present condition then is largely one of adopting Athens over Jerusalem. Justice is not an artifact. It's not a given. It is something that is given and revealed by God. Now let's take the first judgment here, and we can deal with these briefly as we come to the text itself. And we notice that there is a numerical and synonymous parallelism here that highlights the multiplicity of the sins of the various nations and the brutality for which each nation is coming under judgment. So we see this repetitive phrase, for three transgressions and for four. The criminality then that God is judging the nations for here is widespread and habitual. This is what Amos is God is emphasizing through Amos. This is not a one-off sin. 
For three transgressions and for four, he's, Amos highlights a particular act of criminality in each nation. But the point is that these nations are habitually criminal against the Lord. For three transgressions and for four, and the patience of God has run out. Therefore, he says each time, I will not revoke the punishment. So in each announcement of judgment, we have the naming of the criminal act and the announcement of the punishment. What was the primary sin identified here of Damascus? Well, we're told here that the criminality of Damascus was summarized in that they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. This is a kind of hyperbole here for all kinds of gruesome and brutal treatment inflicted upon a people by these invading Aramean soldiers. That is what the prophet is getting at, is there is a cruelty of behavior and slaughter that was as though someone had taken an iron threshing machine and used it that one uses for threshing grain, usually, and used it to literally thresh and grind up a human person. That's the image that Amos is trying to convey. It's the running of a brutal machine over a helpless people. There is a shameless and brutal uh, conquest here. In other words, there is total war being waged against a people. And for this, God will not withhold the punishment. In fact, Amos tells us in verse 4 that the kings Hazel and Ben-Hadad and their fortified royal strongholds will be subject to judgment. Now what that means is that it's not just going to be a, a general judgment on the people, on the nation, but God's judgment extends to geographical and political centers. And don't forget, this isn't Israel we're talking about. For this, for this brutality and total war against the people, as one, as indicative of the crimes of Damascus, God is going to judge the political centers. These fortifications will be like straw to the judging fire of Yahweh. And the type of covenant curse is referred to, this fire is the covenantal judgment of Deuteronomy 32, 22. And it's always indicative of destruction via warfare. Destruction by fire. Now, this is, of course, done by a foreign army, an invading force, but God says, I'm behind it. The source of judgment behind this invading force that is going to uh, be brought about against Damascus is from God himself. It's not just going to be conquest, but there's going to be exile, which again is covenantal curse language. They'll be judged by war and by exile, and there will be an end to this dynasty. Its kings will come to an end, its people will be deported. These are the very judgments that fall against covenant-violating nations. This is the covenant language of the Bible being used against this Gentile people. Now, these oracles, of course, all of them reveal uh, the corruption of the human heart. 
Uh, Mottier has written about this. He says about Amos, the common grace of the creator God extended to the whole creation has mercifully seen to it that the requirements of his law are written on men's hearts. In other words, Damascus should not have been shocked by this. No nation should be shocked that if it wages a brutal and total war against a people, threshing them to pieces, that they're going to come under the judgment of God for this act. And Mottier argues here, Paul's structure for the opening chapter of Romans, showing as they do the guiltiness before God of both the Gentile world and the Jewish world, is a straight lift from the first two chapters of Amos, end quote. I think Mottier is right. He says that Romans 1 and 2 is a straight lift out of the opening chapter of Amos. How can we put this in positive terms? We can't escape the obligation to be human. To be human. To act towards others with humanity. And this is what God's law requires, even if it was not the recipient of the law on tablets of stone. Mosaic law, interestingly, specifically forbids total war. In Deuteronomy 20, 19 through 20, we learn that war is not to be waged indiscriminately or wantonly, and that vineyards and fruit trees for the life of the people are to be preserved. In other words, in war, one is not to totally humiliate those against which you wage war by the total destruction of their ability to produce in the future. Damascus ignores this is without mercy and with wanton brutality threshes the people of the city and God's judgment is pronounced against them. Well, then there's a second judgment and it falls on Gaza in Philistia. Philistia, the Philistines. And this judgment is because of the slave trade. So in the first instance, we have judgment because of a brutal, cruel, total war as indicative of many crimes of the nation. Here, indicative of Gaza is the crime of the slave trade, verses 6 through 8. We read this oracle against Philistia. Four of five cities of the Philistines are mentioned. This has come up before the Lord, and for it, God says, destruction is coming. What was the specifics of their crime? Well, we're told that they captured and enslaved an entire population of a region, all the men, all the women, all the children, and sold them into slavery to a foreign nation. They didn't just make captive workers of the soldiers. They took the entire people, kidnapped them essentially, all of them, and sold them into slavery. Now this may well refer to a period of war between Israel Uh, with Israel or Judah, that's referred to in 2 Kings 13. It might have been a border war of some sort. But the target of God's anger is, again, the wanton cruelty of the Philistines in kidnapping and enslaving this people. And again, they are sinning against their better knowledge. When you go to the law of God, in Exodus 21, 16, we find that for man theft and enslavement, the death penalty is assigned. It's a very strange thing, and I've debated people 
uh, in the universities on this, usually they're out to target the morality of the Bible on debates on the existence of God, and they often cite the Bible's alleged support for slavery. They don't understand what the Bible has to say about uh, indentured workers and servitude, and so they assume it was something like the late European slavery or the, uh, the slave trade, the African slave trade conducted in North America. The Bible cites the death penalty for man theft and enslavement. One can have property in the labor of another. If you owe the bank, for example, the bank has property in your labor. If you declare bankruptcy, the judge can say, well, you're going to pay X amount. And you'll pay it in, out of your income so much. People can have property in your labor, but God says that human beings are his property and they must be dealt with in terms of his word. This Philistia had uh, violated flagrantly and in, even in the, uh, the ancient world, an international slave trade was considered cruelty. Misuse of human beings incurred the judgment of God. It was all about commercial profit. The welfare of the people was being set aside in the interest of purely commercial self-interest. Now, we haven't got time to discuss the way in which people are being defrauded in our own time by commercial self-interest of bankers and investors. Stealing and robbing from people. But this was the same motive here. There was a profit motive, and so they carried off this whole wholesale people and sold them into slavery to foreign nations. God says, you're going to be destroyed for this. Your kingdom is going to fall. Interestingly enough, William Wilberforce, who saw the abolition of the slave trade, slave trade in the British Empire and worked for it for most of his life, he preached sermons to the parliament in England. This is in the 18th century. Can you imagine a, a politician today opening up the Old Testament and preaching a sermon to the parliament? This is what went on all of the time. He preached sermons and he said, and Wilberforce's warning to the nation was that if we do not get rid of this iniquitous slave industry, God's judgment is against our nation. One of his primary motivations in the abolition of the slave trade was to avert the wrath of God against England and the British Empire. The next series of pronouncements is against Tyre. Amos is moving around the points of the compass here, by the way. And now he comes to Tyre another slave-trading nation, a powerful nation at the hub of a very large empire. And it ran a dehumanizing business in slavery. That was one of its sins. Ezekiel 27:13 tells us this. Amongst the many sins which, for which God is judging it, that was one of them. But in particular here, Amos highlights a violation of a treaty, of a brotherhood. They'd made an arrangement. They'd had treaties with Israel existed between the Phoenicians and the Israelites, and they had repeatedly abandoned these treaty provisions. This is mentioned in reference to David in 2 Samuel 5, Solomon in 1 Kings 5 and 11, and Ahab in 1 Kings 16. 
and they'd ignored these treaty obligations, they'd made agreements in good faith, and they'd abandoned those agreements. Now, think about this for a moment. There's been many sins of this nation, but the one Amos highlights here is their treaty violations. They've made agreements. Think, for example, in modern times, modern examples would be Munich prior to World War II. Or the United States, a treaty with Japan prior to Pearl Harbor. Or even, dare I say, Winston Churchill's, the British government's, treaty abandonment at the end of World War II with respect to Poland. The Second World War, in the end, was the war between England and Germany. Britain and Germany was declared because Hitler went into Poland. But at the end, because of the threat of the Soviet Union and all the political pressures, our commitment to Poland upped and vanished like smoke in the wind. I, I give those illustrations because sometimes when it's antiquity, we don't see the relevance. The point here is that God requires us to keep our word. That our word matters to God. The word, the commitments of Gentile nations and the arrangements that they make matter to God. The oaths they make. Did you know that in 1643, England, the British English Parliament made a covenant with God. The Solemn League and Covenant. To serve God, to propagate the gospel for the entire uh, Commonwealth to obey his laws. The Queen, Queen Elizabeth, at the coronation, we're just celebrating the Jubilee, took oath to defend the gospel, to further the law of God throughout her realm and her dominion. Do you think God's forgotten? Do you think God's memory is short? Does God forget oaths and promises that we've made? If we've been married 50 years, has God forgotten the covenant ceremony? It was an insistence that men should keep their promises. Now, that doesn't mean that you might frivolously say, make some quick assurance to somebody, and you realize, actually, I shouldn't have done that. Well, that requires repentance and saying, you know what, I shouldn't have said that, I shouldn't have made that commitment, I can't do it. That's integrity. After all, uh, King Herod made a frivolous promise to, uh, uh, well, who was it, Scott? The beheading of John the Baptist, can you remember? Who was, Herodias? Is the daughter of the, it was the daughter of the Salome. Thank you. And he said, oh, she said, because he was impressed with her dancing, I'll give you anything you want. Now, that's a stupid promise. Right? So it doesn't mean that if we've made, given our word to something and then we realize I've been foolish, that we then say, oh, well, I've got to follow it through because a man's word is his bond. No, we need to repent of those things. But it does remind us that covenants and treaties cannot be broken simply out of pure self-interest. This is not, these things are not irrelevant to modern life, whether it be slavery or keeping our word. Think about the, the slave industry that exists in Toronto. 
These nations were guilty of the slave trade. Did you know there is a slave trade in Toronto, sex trafficking that is going on throughout this country in the big cities? Women being trafficked in and out of the country? We have multitudes of women being dehumanized and abused and tyrannized as sex slaves to satisfy an insatiable industry of pornography which now permeates our entire culture. I could speak for an hour about what's happening to young men in the Western world through addictions to pornography and its abuse of women. Actually, the roots of the modern sex trade are found in 19th century philosophy. German philosopher Schopenhauer, he thought he could reduce man to his will, to his desires. Romanticism began this new way of thinking that began to permeate Europe, which highlighted subjectivism, desire, and feeling. That that should be the thing that governs us. So if I want it, if I desire it, that's what I should do. That's what I should go after. Commitments and promises be hanged. Justice and righteousness be hanged. William Blake a well-known romantic poet in The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, written in 1793, affirmed this principle. He said this, Sooner murder an infant in its cradle than nurse unactive desires. Desire, feeling, will. These are the things which should drive us. Unrestrained, unchecked by the righteousness and justice of God. And our world has moved closer in allying itself with this idea. Blake said, he who desires but acts not breeds pestilence. And this is what we're told today, that when, if you put any form of restriction on people's behavior, we're actually damaging them, we're causing harm. Blake considered the God of Scripture essentially a devil, and he despised the law of God. He said this, the Jehovah of the Bible is no other than he who dwells in flaming fire. This is an antinomian, anti-law romanticism that's permeated our culture. We see now that the unborn infant is essentially property. Reduced to property. My body? I'll do what I want with my body. Even execute the unborn child, reduced to less than a slave, unable to be executed at will. We violate the vulnerable poor and addicted women for sexual exploitation. We fund the insatiable desires which men have by encouraging them to give free rein to their lusts by almost unlimited borrowing and the debts and the economic disaster we ourselves have created. And we're becoming actually slaves as a result. Slavery then wasn't just a problem in biblical times or in the ancient world. It became prominent through the Renaissance and Enlightenment period and again, of course, revived later in Europe. God is concerned with these things today. Then Edom and their vengeance without mercy or pity... Amos pronounces these oracles against Edom in verses 11 through 12. He turns his attention now to these two major cities in the southeast. There was an opposition 
of Edom to Israel that goes back to the time of Moses. You remember when Moses wanted to pass through their land peaceably? He requested peaceable passage. They said no. And they made frivolous war against, pointless war against the Israelites. It's been well documented. It's documented by Saul, David, Solomon, Jehoram. And yet Edom was a brother to Israel. These are the offspring of Isaac, Jacob and Esau. And they're in this protracted conflict and vengeful hatred with one another. It's intractable. It's merciless. The punishment for their enmity and merciless opposition is going to be fire. That's war and defeat. Now, mercy is central to the biblical message, and it's good to focus on this just for a second because of the nature of the passage about judgment. That God here requires of a nation mercy. And because you lack mercy, any kind of human empathy, you're going to be judged. God is revealed as a God of mercy. A God of love. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. It's mine to repay. Not yours. Not mine. It's God's. We long for judgment because it separates, it ends speculation, it ends ambiguity. But judgment has to be always moderated with mercy. Mercy. Ever dealt with a merciless person? Somebody who's totally intractable, unwilling to even see the other side of a situation. Jeremiah speaking for God says, I am merciful, says the Lord. Jesus condemned the Pharisees because they were they were concerned with scrupulous obedience to the minutiae, the details of religious observance, but he says, You've neglected the weighty matters of the law justice, and mercy. Since our judgments are limited and partial, we are not the great judge of all the earth. This is why we need the law of God. This is why we need the justice of God. Because man's law is without mercy. It's without justice, and therefore it is always without mercy. Our relationships to each other are to be merciful. We're not to allow roots of bitterness to be established in our lives. We're never to pursue personal vengeance against others. Edom's vengeful heart and merciless heart led to its own destruction as a national judgment. The Ammonites, then, in verses 13 through 15, we're almost done. We're almost there. Just a few more minutes. Verses 13 through 15 deals with the Ammonites, the major city of Rabbah, modern Amman in Jordan, has this brutal past regarding Israel. Amos highlights their specific crime as ripping open Gilead's pregnant women. A violation of God's commandments. This is a hideous and horrific image of, again, merciless warfare. The opposition had gone on since the time of the judges where their only purpose was this territorial expansion. 
and they were indiscriminately prepared to murder pregnant women and kill the unborn. Now this has a particular relevance to us today, does it not? Are we not ripping open pregnant women and destroying the unborn? No violation is more likely to bring down the curse of God than the murder of the helpless unborn. God's law specifically protects, I was dealing with this here at Westminster a couple of weeks ago, specifically protects, in particular, pregnant women and the unborn in Exodus 21, 22 through 24. Malcolm Muggeridge, interestingly enough, in May 1977 at the Ottawa Civic Centre, warned in his address, abortion to, to euthanasia, that there would be a slippery slope from abortion rights to euthanasia. And he was absolutely right. These are right at the door now, today. Abortion, the killing of the unborn, had been a criminal offense in Canada since the Act of 1841. And in 1967, Canada's centennial year, Pierre Trudeau was Canada's justice minister, Ironic, the justice minister. And he popularized that famous phrase, the state has no place in the bedrooms of the nation. And a pro-abortion movement grew. This is why we have no abortion law today. Various Canadian groups and their rallying cry became, quote, give me liberty and give them death. Did you know that? Give me liberty and give them death. This was the cry of those people seeking justice. Their idea of justice. And a single omnibus criminal code amendment bill led in 1968 to an amendment that allowed therapeutic abortions if three physicians on hospital therapeutic committees were prepared to certify in writing that continuing of the pregnancy would or would, be, or would be likely to endanger a pregnant woman's life or health. Health was never defined. In 1970, a pregnant woman's life or health apparently endangered 11,000 pregnancies. By the 80s, 100,000 a year. And then, of course, you probably know the rest of the story. Abortion on demand became part of the feminist rhetoric, and then Henry Morgenthaler appeared, a Nazi Holocaust survivor. Came to Canada in 1950, and from 67 through 73, operated his abortion clinic in Montreal. Hunter tells us that in March 1973, he boasted to a Toronto audience that he had performed 5,000 illegal abortions. Two months later, he followed this up on Mother's Day, Mother's Day, by performing a live abortion on nationwide television. Finally, the authorities did something under immense pressure and the Attorney General of Ontario heard indictments against these doctors. It went to the Ontario Court of Appeal. A trial was ordered. It was appealed to the Supreme Court of Canada. 
raising the issue of a conflict between the criminal code from the British North America Act, English common law, Christian law, and the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And by a vote of five to two, it was deemed unconstitutional to prevent abortion on demand. And we then gave Morgan Taller the highest citation for which anybody is capable in Canada, the Order of Canada. Now, this is what God said to the pagan nations who destroyed pregnant women and their children. Amos declares that God himself will kindle a fire against them, and sure enough, they were crushed by the Assyrians under a new dynasty. They paid heavy tribute, and they were depopulated by the 6th century. The whole empire vanished without trace disappeared. There are whole peoples, empires, nations who have vanished from the pages of history. How shall we escape is the question. And in the last three verses in chapter 2 there, Moab comes under judgment and their specific crime is the desecration of the tomb of a neighboring king. This is an unusual act of humiliation and barbarity which culminated, Amos says here, the sins of Moab. It was the culmination of their many sins. We can't understand why it was cruel unless we are aware that by desecrating that king's grave under the religious assumptions of the day, by burning his bones to lime, they believed that they destroyed the possibility of his resurrection from the dead. There was no way, religiously, they believed that such a man could be reconstituted. It was an act of murder for eternity. Now, the Bible doesn't here endorse the pagan beliefs of that nation. But what it does say, what it does tell us to consider, not, is not magical beliefs, but that this was the intention to destroy this king, this nation emblematically, by pronouncing an eternal judgment against him, was grievous to God as a culmination of their sin and rebellion against God. Interestingly enough, Oliver Cromwell, the great Puritan statesman in England, who gave us parliamentary democracy and took a punitive and cruel justice system in England, and restored it to Christian biblical law, was so hated after his death and the restoration of Charles II by the humanists that they desecrated his grave, they exhumed his body, and they hung him in London, his corpse. The punishment on this nation for this crime was a consuming warfare and exile, and it was a punishment not just on the people, but on the whole government and leadership of Ammon. What is the message of all of these oracles? I've tried to highlight as we've gone through them, and there has been those quite a list to cover, how they bear relevance to our own day. Do we think, nowhere are we given permission to think in Scripture that God no longer cares what the nations do? Nowhere are we told that God has ceased now to be interested in what Britain does, or what the United States does, or what Canada does, or what China does, or what Russia does, or what any of the world's nations do. 
God's law still governs. God is still sovereign over all the nations. And since the advent of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're told all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. We're told that we have been commissioned to take God's word and commandments into all of these nations and baptize them. We're told emphatically that each and every person and every nation is under the sovereignty of God. He judges the nations and holds us, not just individually, but collectively to account. When I read this passage, I couldn't help but ask myself the question, has Canada or England or the United States been weighed in the balance and found wanting. We have to pray and work for the repentance of our nation like that of Nineveh. For those of you who were here when Ligon Duncan came and spoke on Jonah, we had the good news that despite God's sovereignty over Nineveh and that great empire, he sent a prophet to warn them and Nineveh repented and God relented. And God, by our faithfulness, by our prayers, by our diligence, perhaps we can be spared the indictment that for three sins and for four, Canada, I won't revoke the punishment. Perhaps God will. And we're told in Scripture that we can hold out that hope as we pray, Lord, in your justice... Remember mercy. Remember mercy. Because the God of the Bible, brothers and sisters, is not to be trifled with. We think we can trifle with God, and we can't. Our God, the writer of Hebrews says, is a consuming fire. That's the message of Amos. God is a consuming fire. Have I left you on a happy note? A cheerful note. The cheerful note is that we can rejoice in the justice and the judgments of God because when his judgment is being pronounced, his salvation and redemption is always being proffered. And when God judges an age, it's because he is going to use a people to restore his work. The Bible says everything that can be shaken will be shaken. Why? so that only that which cannot be shaken will remain. I'll take some questions for a few minutes. My question is, how does God judge believers now and after the resurrection? And a second question is, can you comment on what is the sin unto death as a judgment from God? Uh, Well, God judges uh, believers... Uh, in terms of his covenant. So uh, God assures us uh, of certain blessings and promises when we're faithful, and he promises the believer that there will be discipline uh, if we are unfaithful. I think it's Hebrews 12 which talks about us as children who, if we were not under the discipline of God, would be fatherless. Uh, And therefore, it's a mark of the uh, blessing of God in our lives when we are disciplined, when we come under his covenant sanctions. So we as Christians can't expect to be, uh, because of the fact that we have 
Christ and are in the gospel, we can't expect that there will be no temporal consequences for our violations of God's law. Um, as far as our Godward relationship is concerned, our salvation is secure. We are justified. We've been made righteous in the Lord Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean I can then walk in disobedience. That's exactly Paul's argument. He says, do we sin that grace may abound? Absolutely not. We, we cannot walk in an attitude of to use grace as an excuse for sin. If we do, we come under the sanctions of God's, God's covenant. At the final judgment, we're told that uh, Christians, we are, are, we are safe and secure in Christ, our Savior. He is our advocate. Uh, but that we will undergo still a judgment of works in which our, our lives, life's work, how we have lived before the Lord will be subject to testing. We're told a testing by fire. And it says some will escape as through fire. So that uh, if, our, if our lives have not been built and constructed upon the word of God, it's the foundation, but on wood, hay, stubble, the Bible says it's going to be burned up. So that, uh, dare I say, heaven is not equalitarian. Uh, there are rewards for faithfulness. I mean, the parables of the talents surely illustrate the nature of the kingdom of God with respect to that. So there will be some people who, yes, are in the kingdom of God, but will, will suffer loss, Paul says, because of unfaithfulness. So this is not a question of whether, whether we are secure and justified before God, but there are still temporal consequences for Christians who sin. If I am a believer, and like David, commit adultery and murder, there are going to be temporal consequences. As far as the uh, sin unto death is concerned, I think that's a reference to the un unforgivable sin, which is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Scholars have debated the meaning of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit for a very long time. I think it means the ultimate and final rejection of the gospel, which is proffered to us by the Holy Spirit. He's the one who makes it known. We're told uh, in the Gospel of John that it's through him that men are convicted of sin, righteousness, and of judgment. If we reject the witness of the Holy Spirit fully and finally, it's a sin unto death. So how does a nation or an individual, if they have um, committed a sin, such as like Canada and the United States are committing sins through abortion, or an individual and they've committed sins or something like that, how do they then, knowing that God's going to judge them for that, how do, how do people... Um, like knowing that there's consequences, how do they like? Yeah, how do they like not live in a life of fear of the consequences, or how do they avoid the consequences of sin instead of like yeah? Thank you. We can't avoid the consequences of sin. Actually, uh, Christ has to bear the personally, individually. The only way for men to avoid the consequences of sin is for our sin to be carried by the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the meaning of the, of the gospel. So in Christ, individually, our sins are borne away. Uh, nationally, corporately, if men want to uh, avoid the judgment of God, there has to be repentance. Uh, we know that we can know that uh, sin is going to be judged by looking at God's word. We're told that all of Scripture is written for our instruction, for our reproof, for training in righteousness. And uh, we're given multiple examples from the time of uh, 
the expulsion from Eden, the expulsion of the Canaanites, the exile of Israel, and on and on through history of God's judgments in history that teach us that nations corporately can't just get away with doing what they like and expect God not to act. So the way in which, of course, we avoid uh, corporate judgment, let me, let me give you another illustration. Judgment on the church. Pastor Scott read the passage there from Peter about judgment beginning at the house of God. If we look at the church today, and we look at faithless churches that have abandoned the gospel and abandoned the word of God, where are they today? They're dead. Their doors are closing. These denominations are real estate boards, just shedding all of their properties. They are finished because God judges faithlessness. And it begins with the church. If ever we wanted an illustration of God's judgment against the church, you just have to look at the Church of Canada, the United Church of Canada today. They're not the only ones. Corporately, that requires repentance. The church collectively has to repent. And I believe that nations can repent. Do you know that the National Day of Prayer in the United States was rested on the old evangelical Puritan tradition of calling regular days and weeks of fasting and prayer over given crises that the nation might be facing? If there had been a hard economic times or a bad harvest or war was threatening, the National Day of Prayer is a remnant of regularly called days of prayer. This went on throughout Europe. The, the nations, the governments did this. We regularly called upon the nation to pray. So if we want to, as corporately, either as a church or churches or as a nation, repentance is the only answer. And repentance can be corporate. I think repentance can be national. It doesn't mean that every individual may be taking all of it to heart, but it means there is a sense amongst the people, a given group of people, that... Uh, we want God's mercy and his grace. Um, as a sidebar, there's a very interesting series of videos, uh, a, a documentaries. Um, now, what are they called? Some of you may have seen them, actually. Um, they're basically about various parts of the world. Uh, the, a recent one was made about Fiji, in some of the islands of Fiji, where there's been a corporate turning to the gospel, corporate repentance. Uh, Transformations, thank you. Series of transformations that are utterly remarkable to watch. Where you see islands, people groups, towns in different settings. And the, everything's affected. The, the water supply, the, the, the health of the fruit. It, it, when actually, we, we, in our naturalistic way of thinking, we find this stuff difficult. But when actually we turn to God and repent, he will heal our land. That's the promise of the Bible. So we corporately repent before God as a church, as a people, and I believe national repentance is possible. And calling a meaningful day of prayer and fasting or a week of prayer for the nation, can you imagine that in Canada? And I believe God hears and answers such prayers. That's the model of the Bible, and we used to apply it. Can we take heart from government actions like the apology to the Japanese who were interned during Second World War, or the... Uh, Apology to the native people who went to the residential schools? I think it's, I think it's always uh, significant and important when uh, corporate or national crimes are uh, repented of. The motive matters, of course. 
if we're apologizing because we've created a victim group and we want to look politically correct, that's different from repentance towards God uh, and repentance for violation of God's law. So if we're concerned about uh, brutal treatment of the, the of uh, Japanese uh, persons in North America during the war, and it's meaningful because we uh, we have a genuine sense of contrition about brutality. Yes, it's significant and important. Uh, if we're uh, certain acts of uh, repentance can be hypocritical, we need to guard against that. The motive does matter. Just as a follow-up briefly to that, um, isn't there a danger at the same time that the redress movements will gain momentum and various and sundry such movements, victim, victim movements? Uh, the government of Canada likes to give out large uh, sums of money Prime Minister Mulroney did it uh, tw 20 more years ago. There are other redress movements in the works. Isn't that yes. dangerous in the area of the victimization you spoke about earlier? Very, very good point. And I don't want to uh, digress too far, but yes, the, uh, that's a very, very good point. The, um, we have to be careful that what we're not doing is guilt payments, a kind of false atonement. There's a kind of masochistic urge that dominates Western thinking today, which is that somehow that we, we are told perpetually that we are guilty people, that uh, the European peoples in particular are, especially white male middle class men like myself, are the epitome of evil, and that we are responsible, this is what the political elites say, that we are essentially responsible for all the world's ills, and Christianity is responsible for these ills, and the European nations and their missions, uh, projects are responsible for such ills and evils and that um, uh, we need to repent of them and we need to make guilt payments and transfer payments and so on. This is masochism. This is not godly repentance. Uh, this is an idea that we can atone for our sins, real or imagined, by self-punishment. We can't do that. That's not godly repentance. So we have to be very, that's why I say the motive is critically important, that if there are real sins of which we need to repent, uh, God hears repentance. If we are trying to atone for our own sins by works of righteousness, it, no, it's, it's, it's ineffectual. Thank you, Joe. As I hear uh, um, the, the God's judgment uh, on these uh, Gentile nations, I can't help but ask... Now, what hope is there for the world if there's no God's judgment? But at the same time, I ask, what hope is there for us Christians if there is God's judgment? I ask this because uh, I think after uh, you mentioned, uh, I wish you covered uh, what uh, the oracle of Amos uh, addressing the, the, uh, the nation of Israel, where who was privileged, who was revealed God's word, God's promises in, in, in this in a in a very explicit way of covenant, uh, and yet rejecting. In other words, uh, yes, we see it, it, the trends uh, and all the uh, lawlessness on the parts of Gentile nations, um, and, 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 and Amos re appeals on the basis of moral law that God is the creator. And yet, for Israelites, uh, it was even more special, more privileged, and yet they have sinned. And they're looking at all the the lawlessness that the Gentiles are committing, and they're laughing at them. And 
and, and, and Amos turns to Israel and says, look, you who have the laws have rejected the law. Yeah. Now, I'm asking this question because we're now in, living in a covenant of grace. We as Christians, now, hearing you saying about abortions and all that, uh, you know, for us who are saved by grace uh, are, and, and indifferent to the social injustice that's going on around, is actually uh, uh, in a situation that is worse than uh, committing uh, uh, abortions. So what hope is there for Christians if there is God's judgment? And I think you briefly touched at the end, uh, as a nation, as an individual, we have to repent. But I also would like to have heard from you uh, the, the, the person who uh, substituted ourselves, because the sin is our, our substituting in behalf of uh, uh, we, we put, putting ourselves in the place of God, but we also have our Lord Jesus Christ, who substitutes himself in our behalf. Therefore, not only we can repent, but also have faith in the object of Christ and what he has done in the life of, uh, of Christ. So I would have liked to have heard that more than the, the lawless and the Gentiles. Yes, and also wanted to have that point that brought as, a, as, a, as, a, as an Israelite, not in the new Christian. Looking at all those around makes us only ask the question, what hope is there indeed? Okay. Uh, so, um, well, first of all, just in terms of what was dealt with, uh, Paul Martin last week dealt specifically with Israel uh, and the uh, judgment on Israel. This week we were specifically looking at the first chapter there to focus on God's universal justice and a focus on the Gentile nations, where there's an implicit covenant, not an explicit covenant. Israel is to be has a missiological task in the Old Testament to be a witness and a light to the Gentiles. That's their purpose. So the whole function of Israel was not that they had some secret special privilege to keep to themselves. Rather, they were to be the bearers of the promises and a light to the nations. That was the, their calling. So that people would, the surrounding nations would look at Israel and say, nobody has a God like their God. Deuteronomy 4. No, no nation has laws like their laws. Where is there such justice and righteousness anywhere to be seen? Than the, they were to be a model, an example, an exemplar. They failed in that, that's true. And as we heard, judgment begins at the house of God. So Israel was carried off into exile for its sins. It was exiled and thrown out of the promised land. So we can't, uh, how shall we escape if we ignore so great salvation? That's why the, the response of the church is critical. We can't be indifferent to these issues. This is not an exercise in finger pointing, saying, look at the bad world out there, we have to start with the church. And the problem in the church today is we don't recognize the law of God as even being valid for, for, for over us, for many Christians. And we don't recognize, and if we're not sensitive to God's justice, then of course we're not really that concerned about what, what's going on out there. So the hope is the gospel. That's the hope. The hope is that we, as a faithful people, that's why the gospel always calls us to faithfulness, the hope is that we will be a faithful church. Paul is given the task that Israel was given, you'll recall, when he's called in the book of Acts, to be a light to the nation, to the Gentiles. I'm sending you, he says, to be a light. The gospel is going to the Gentiles now as a light, so that the, the, the promises that we carry as God's church, we're the, now the bearers of the gospel to all the nations. So the hope is a faithful church in Jesus Christ bearing the gospel to the nations so that they become obedient to the faith. And you'll notice in the Great Commission, it's not simply individuals that are being baptized, it's nations. 
baptize the nations and discipline them in terms, in the Greek, it's discipline in terms of God's commandments. So the hope that we have in the face of judgment is the glorious news of the gospel and the fact that we have a hope in Christ. He's making us new and remaking us in his image. And we have that gospel to declare so that God's righteousness and God's justice is manifested and seen everywhere. Let's wind it up there because it's a warm night and it's nine o'clock. Let's just pray as we close. There are refreshments downstairs. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. Lord, we don't stand before you tonight in our own righteousness. Our own righteousness is like filthy rags. We recognize our need of the Lord Jesus Christ and his redemptive work and his regeneration in our lives. And we thank you that he has come to redeem us from all lawlessness, that we might become the righteousness of God. Lord, help us to be bearers of that light and that life in our families, in our communities, that we would take your word and the righteousness of your justice and law in those in our sphere of influence and to the nations, that your name may be glorified and that we, Lord, even as a people, may avert your judgment. We know we richly deserve it. We pray that in judgment you would remember mercy and prosper your word again in our time, we pray. Bless your church, we pray, once again in our time with a faithful word and a prophetic witness. Forgive us our sins. And may your kingdom come in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.